Hey y'all, thanks for tuning in to this week's recording of Redeemer Church of Knoxville's Sunday Sermon. We're really glad to have you with us because we know that there are a million different podcasts that you could be listening to right now. So we're thankful that you've chosen to spend some of your day with us. We hope that this recording will be an encouragement to you and that God, by his spirit, will use his word to remind you of Jesus' love. If you would like to reach out to us, we would love to hear from you. To do that, please email us at office at redeemerknoxville.org. We also want to give a quick thank you shout out to Evie Andrus and Parker Green, who you hear playing our awesome intro and outro music here each week. Lastly, if you'd like to support Redeemer and her mission to Urban and University Knoxville, please visit www.redeemerknoxville.org and look for the little give button in the top right corner. Thank you so much, and here is this week's sermon. Well, if you have a Bible and you would like to follow along with me, please turn to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 18. You can follow along with me uh, in your own personal Bible, in the Bible that's provided for you in the pew racks, or also it's been copied for you and pasted into the bulletin. So you can follow along if you'd like to do that. Uh, I do want to thank you for letting me be your pastor uh, for the last five years. I'm thankful that you haven't fired me yet or asked me to leave yet. Um, And even though uh, we had no idea what we were doing when we got into a U-Haul about five years ago and made our way down uh, the Shenandoah Valley, down into the state of Tennessee, uh, God has been so kind to us through you. Uh, This church has loved us very well. You've been encouraging to us. You've been kind to us. I'm glad we can stay and uh, <laughs> so far. And, uh, and I'm just really thankful for the way you've loved my wife, you've loved my children, you've allowed us to be who we are uh, in Jesus, and you've encouraged us in Christ. And so I just really do uh, want to thank you. I know it feels a little bit made up to celebrate five years with cotton candy and popcorn, but there's always reason to have a party. If you can't party, <laughs> there's so much sadness in the world, let's party when we can. And uh, And it's a good reason uh, to celebrate uh, your kindness to me. And so thank you uh, for whoever thought of acknowledging this day. Thank you for that. Uh, I do want to welcome you to Redeemer this morning. It's so great to have you with us because I know there are a million different things you could be doing this morning. Uh, For instance, you could be at home preparing to watch the final round of the Masters. Uh, You could be at home trying to finish book three of Dune. That book is so long and it is a grind and trying to figure out whether or not to finish uh, book three. I'm just got to get into it. Uh, Or you could be uh, in line uh, waiting to get your new PlayStation 5 or Xbox Series 5, which I think came out this week. And if you had bought it, you're probably at home after staying up for 48 hours playing straight. Uh, But you're not doing any of those things this morning. You're here with us. And so I do want to thank you uh, for coming. And there really is nothing better we could do with our time uh, than worship Jesus, uh, to consider his claims upon our life, and to think about the beauty of his kingdom. And so thank you for joining us. What is Redeemer? Redeemer is a church, and what that means is that we're a community of people who are trying to learn how to love God, and we're trying to learn how to love our neighbor. And fundamentally, what we believe is that Jesus is God. He's the Messiah. He's entered into the world uh, to die for our sins and to reveal the love of the Father. And so every week, as his people, we gather together to worship him so that we could learn to rest in the love that God has for us. And as we rest in his love, we become a people who love to hang out. We play Xbox with each other. We read the Bible together. We pray together. uh, We watch football together. We dance together. All to remind each other of the great love that God has for us in Jesus. So as we rest in his love, as we remind each other of his love, we then become a people who love to gather together in service. So that together 
we might reflect the love of God to our family, to our friends, and to our neighbors who are here in Urban and University, Knoxville. And hopefully in some way it would spill out into the entire world, right? That's who we are. People trying to learn how to love God, trying to learn how to love our neighbor as we rest, as we remind, and as we reflect. And so to help us do that, we're in the middle of a series on the kingdom of God as seen through the lens of the gospel of Mark. And so this morning, what I want us to think about is, is this glorious vision in the transfiguration, this glorious vision. So with that in mind, let's look together at Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 18. And he said to them, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came uh, to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able Uh, the gospel of the Lord. Uh, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Would you pray with me now for the teaching? Uh, Heavenly Father, um, it is good to be with your people, and it is good to hear your word, and we pray that you would be with us as we study it, that you would attend unto your word by your spirit, that we would see lovely things of Jesus this morning, that we might be motivated to follow you through the valleys and into glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I would assume that many of you have been to football games at the University of Tennessee. And if you've been to a football game at UT, you'll have noticed there's this huge jumbotron that is in the south end zone. And at some point during every game, they love to show highlights of former Vols who have made it into the NFL. And why do they show those past highlights of former Vols who've now gone into the NFL? Well, they do it on the one hand just to celebrate the past, right? I mean, to celebrate that these uh, people have accomplished so much and that they are Vols for life. And so we celebrate their accomplishments. But on a more pragmatic level, what they're trying to do 
is reach the recruits. Uh, they're trying to give a glorious vision for what being a vol could be all about. And it's as if they're saying through these videos, look, even though things are rough right now, <laughs> if you want to enter into the glory of the NFL, the University of Tennessee might be your path. You see, what they're doing is they're giving recruits a vision of the future, and they're saying, if you endure the suffering now, uh, glory awaits, right? Now, in a much more significant way, uh, the transfiguration sort of acts like those NFL moments on the jumbotron, because what the transfiguration is doing is giving us a vision for the glory that awaits us. It's this vision that God in his kindness is giving to his disciples to say, if you will follow me through the suffering, if you will walk the way of the cross, glory awaits. And that's what I hope you'll see this morning, that, that Jesus is God's glory. And he invites us to follow him. Right? Jesus is the glory. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the glory. Now, the transfiguration tells us that Jesus is the glory. You see that in verses 2 and 3. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and they led him up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, immensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Now, this obviously would have been a powerful, glorious experience for Peter, James, and John. But the question is, what did it mean? What did this vision mean? What was the transfiguration all about? Now, to understand the transfiguration, it's really important to hear the echoes of the past reverberating into this one moment. And so think about it this way. Think about the Mandalorian. Uh, the Mandalorian is this very interesting Star Wars story. And the big question surrounding the Mandalorian when it first came out was, when did it happen? When is this stuff happening? Because as you watch it, everything feels sort of familiar and old, and yet at the same time feels really new and really fresh. And so as you're watching The Mandalorian, there are these echoes of the Republic and there are echoes of the Empire and there are echoes of stormtroopers and Baby Yoda and their lightsabers and their blasters and speeder bikes and sand people. And I'm sure many of you who are watching Mandalorian, you all know that Mando flies around the galaxy around the year 4 ABY, right, uh, after the Battle of Yavin, which of course was five years after the Return of the Jedi and 25 years before The Force Awakens. But we digress. Uh, the, but the point is that like all of these echoes of the past are then reverberating into the moment of this story to allow it to feel familiar, but to allow the story to move on, to move forward and to become clear. Well, when we come to the transfiguration, something very similar is happening because a long, long time ago, uh, before Peter, James, and John had gone up the mountain with Jesus, Moses had also gone up a mountain, and he went up with his assistant, Joshua. And there they were on the mountain, this mountain of glory, and the glory of the Lord covered that mountain for six days. And the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire, 
and while they were in that cloud, God established his covenant with Moses on behalf of the people of God, and he gave Moses the Ten Commandments for the people of God. And when Moses then came down the mountain, uh, he comes down the mountain into the valley, and the people are grumbling, the people are complaining, the people are worshiping the golden calf. And so Moses gets angry. You remember, he throws the Ten Commandments down. God invites Moses to come back up on the mountain. And when Moses goes up on the mountain, he says, I can't do it without you. I need to see your glory. Let me see your face. And God says, no, you can't see my face for man shall not see me and live. And then Moses hears this and he does, he says something really beautiful. He says, please. I mean, he says, please show me your glory. So God then takes Moses, he puts him in the cleft of the rock, he covers over his face, and then he passes by. And then this really weird thing happens uh, in the Bible. Moses walks down the mountain, and when he comes down the mountain, his face is just shining. His face is just reflecting the glory of God that had passed by him. Well, here we are centuries later, and Jesus is with his friends, And they go up on a mountain, and there's a cloud, and there's six days, and Moses is there. And we read in verse 3, Jesus was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. And if you've ever read the other accounts of the transfiguration in Matthew and in Luke, you'll remember that it says that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And so as we read the transfiguration, it's almost as if we have a new Moses in Jesus. But there's something different about this event of the transfiguration because when Moses went up on the mountain and he comes down the mountain, Moses is reflecting the glory of God. But at the transfiguration, Jesus isn't reflecting the glory of God. Jesus is radiating the glory of God. Jesus is the glory of God. And this surely is what what the writer of Hebrews had in mind when he wrote that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. Now this is very subtle, but it's very important because all kind of religious figures are pointing to God, even in the Bible, right? Moses and his shining face was pointing to God. Elijah and his ministry were pointing to God. Even in other religions, if you think about about Islam, Muhammad is pointing to Allah. If you think about Buddhism, Buddha was pointing to the glorious way. But in Christianity, Jesus isn't pointing. Uh, Jesus is actually the point. And all this is not merely an echo. It is also a fulfillment Many of you, if you've read uh, the Old Testament, you probably remember in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is telling the people that uh, there will come one who is like me, and you must listen to him. And so Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God out Mount Horeb. And how you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And God said, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among your brothers and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. God's saying, I'm going to put my words in the mouth of my son who is like Moses and you must listen to him. 
And that's why this voice then comes down in verse 7. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so what God is saying is if you want to know me, if you want to know my glory, if you want to see me, then you must first listen to my son. Now, if Jesus is the glory of God, what that means is that we must worship him. And to worship him uh, is not just coming for an hour and 10 minutes on Sunday morning and singing the songs and reading the passages, though it does mean that. To worship Jesus means that uh, he must become the one who defines your life. He is the one around whom your life must orbit. He is the gravitational force of your life that is pulling you into himself. He's the one that shapes your decisions at work and your decisions at home. Uh, He's the one who shapes your decisions about how you spend your money and how you spend your time and what you love and what you turn away from. He's the one that we must worship because Jesus is the glory Right? Jesus is the glory. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the glory. And then notice verse 4. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now think about this. Jesus, or Moses had been up on the mountain uh, with God, and he was asking God to see his glory. But there on the mountain, he wasn't allowed to see it. We move forward in time, and what is beautiful is that God now invites Moses to stand with him on the mountain. And what does he do? He shows Moses the glory that he had always longed to see. Moses, who'd wanted to see the glory of God, now gets to see it in the face of Jesus. And notice that as Moses and Elijah are there, verse 4, they're talking with Jesus. Could you imagine standing there and Jesus just radiating this glory and there's this conversation going on? And what do you think they might have been talking about? Uh, the election, uh, college football, uh, COVID. Right? I mean, all those are really important conversations, uh, not to belittle them, they're really important. But on the mountain, surrounded by the glory of God, what do you think they were talking about? They're talking about the things that matter the most. They're talking about God and how he would reveal his glory in the world and what that kingdom might look like. In Luke chapter 9, it tells us, Luke tells us what they were talking about. And he says they were talking about his departure. And in the Greek, the word for departure is his exodus. They were talking about the exodus of Jesus. Again, this is uh, an echo that's reverberating, this echo of the glory of God in his defining work of salvation. If you remember, the Exodus was that act of God through which God revealed his glory by saving his people from, from death and slavery in Egypt, showing his power by parting uh, the Red Sea to deliver uh, his people into the promised land. And so they're talking about uh, not Moses' Exodus, But they're talking about his exodus. And what Jesus is saying is just as I delivered my people in the past, I will do it again. Everything that I had done in the past was preparation for my exodus that I will go through the valley. I will deliver you through sin and through death. And I will part the way of death itself so that you might go through death and into resurrection. 
Jesus is telling them about his own exodus. Now think about uh, how encouraging this conversation must have been for Moses and Elijah. Because uh, their ministries seemed to have ended in failure. I mean, both of them had spoken of a Messiah that they'd never seen. Moses had spoken of a, um, a promised land and brought his people to a promised land that he was never allowed to enter into. Uh, Moses spoke of a law that was never fulfilled. Moses helped build a tabernacle that was replaced by a temple. They offered sacrifices over and over and over and over again. They set up a priesthood that would die and have to be replaced. Elijah was hoping to reunite the kingdom of Israel and calling the people of God to repentance, and that too was never fully realized. And they both had these kind of weird deaths where they're taken away, one in a chariot, one seems to die on the mountain, nobody knows what happened to him. And they both have these lives that they live that were surrounded by conflict and disappointment and suffering. And they were rejected. And there on the mountain, God invites them to come and he reveals his glory to them. As if to say, all that you were looking for, all that you did, all that you hope to accomplish is found in me. Everything that you are about, all the glory you live for, it is found in me. It is right here before you in the face of Jesus. And for Peter, James, and John, who probably grew up hearing these stories of Moses and of Elijah, um, the transfiguration is telling them that everything they knew about the prophets and about the law and the temple and the kingdom and all their hopes and their dreams, all the songs that they grew up singing are fulfilled in Jesus. And for you and for me, as we read this story of the transfiguration and we begin to capture a glimpse of his glory, it's telling us the same thing, that all of history, all of your life, all that you long for, uh, is to be found in Christ. I think this is probably what C.S. Lewis had in mind, uh, in the back of his mind when he wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And, and what he's saying is that when you begin to capture a vision of the glory of God in the face of Jesus, it's through him that you begin to see everything. Everything gets ordered around him. And notice Peter's reaction to all this in verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Uh, it's, I love just that little, he didn't know what to say because he was terrified, acknowledging that this is a dumb comment by Peter. Again, missing the point, because what he's seemingly saying is, let's build, a, let's build a tabernacle for you and Moses and for Elijah. You're just like them. You're this great religious figure in God's redemptive plan. But again, he's missing the point, because the point of the vision is that Jesus is actually the glorious son of God who Moses and Elijah had always longed to see. See, Jesus is not one among many. Uh, Jesus is actually the one. 
Which is why the voice comes down from the cloud, verse 7, and says, listen to him. And God is saying it's all about him. He is the divine presence on the earth. He is the person of glory. He is the one we long to see. And more than that, he is the one to whom we all must give an account. You see, Jesus is the glory, right? Jesus is the glory. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the glory. And so when Peter, James, and John see the glory of God, they think, oh my goodness, the kingdom of God is here. This is great. Let's stay up here and bask in the glory. Let us stay here. And if we stay here, we can avoid the frustration and the conflict that is down in the valley, which is why they say, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here on the mountain and not down there in the conflict. And so let us stay here and we can avoid the suffering. And to be honest... Uh, it's kind of what I want. I would assume it's what you want to stay up on the mountain, to bask in the glory, to avoid the suffering of the valley. And I think that though conferences and retreats and vacations, those are great, those are really gifts from God and they're very important to participate in. But we love the conferences and the retreats and the vacations because why? They're escapes. They're escapes from the burdens and the confusion and the conflict and the suffering. And and so think about it. What happens is Moses then comes down the mountain. And when he comes down the mountain, he was surrounded by grumbling and complaining and the worship of a golden calf. Now, in the transfiguration, uh, Jesus and his friends come down the mountain And they're immediately surrounded by what? An arguing crowd, a demon-possessed man, and a coming crucifixion. He leads them down the mountain into the valley. And here's the point. At the transfiguration, God is giving us this great gift of seeing his glory in order to encourage us to follow him through the valleys. You'll probably remember last week we talked about that the way of the kingdom is the way of the cross. Jesus had just told his disciples to take up their cross and follow him. And what that meant was that he was going to lead them to death. He was going to lead them into the way of suffering so that they might know resurrection. And so what he then does is he takes his friends and he takes them up on the mountain and he reveals his glory to them as if to say We're going to go down into the valley and we're going to walk the way of the cross. And I want you to know that at the end of the valley, there is my glory. He's showing them a vision of the glory of God so that they will not give up in the midst of the valley. So Jesus then leads them down the mountain into the valley. And again, this is important because Jesus doesn't reveal his glory in order to remove the suffering. Instead, what he's doing is he's revealing the glory in order to encourage us to follow him through the suffering. And that's what it meant for Peter. If, if you've read 1 and 2 Peter, you'll know that they're all about suffering. 1 and 2 Peter, he just talks about suffering, talks about suffering, talks about suffering. 
And in 2 Peter, he says this, For when Jesus received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And so what he's doing, if you're not kind of putting the pieces together, if you're not picking up what I'm putting down, when Peter's talking about the suffering that he's enduring and that his friends are enduring, what he does is say, I want you to remember the glory that I saw. I want you to remember the glory that has been promised to you. Do not turn away. And it's this vision of glory that has fueled the faithfulness of God's people throughout history. It's that knowledge, it's that gift that God has given us to say, glory is at the end of your suffering, do not give up. Most of you, I'm sure, know of Martin Luther King Jr. and his famous speech, the mountaintop speech. It's an echo of this passage. You'll remember what he said. He said, well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, but it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop and I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will, and he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And what he is saying is I've been there and I've seen what is to come and it is worth my life. Is what Moses was saying. I have seen the glory of God and it is worth my life and I will lead my people to the promised land even if I don't get there with them. It is worth it because he is worth it. It's what Peter was saying is he was surrounded by suffering in his little church and with his friends he's saying, I don't know what is in front of us but I do know that glory awaits and I will not quit because it is worth it. It's what the Apostle Paul was saying. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. You see, it's this glory that has motivated God's people. It's this vision of the coming glory, this longing to see God's glory fill and radiate through the entire earth. And it's that vision of glory that, that motivated and enabled Christians to die on the floor of the Colosseum. It's that vision that enables Christians to give their money away because they know that this world is not all that there is. It's what motivates Christians to go as missionaries leaving their homes and going into foreign lands because they know that there's a glory that awaits that is stronger than the bindings of this earth. Is what enables Christians to leave home and plant churches and leave the comforts of their community to plant a new community. Is that vision of the glory that enables Christians to open their homes to the orphan and serve the poor and to care for the widow and to abstain from sexual immorality and to forgive those who've wronged them and to ask for forgiveness from those uh, to whom they've wronged. Is that vision of the coming glory that says the suffering is not all that there is, but there is glory that awaits, that enables us to persevere and endure. 
to love God and to love our enemy. Because the suffering is not all that there is in this life. The valleys, they seem long and they seem dark. But they come to an end. And at the end is the glory. And the promise of the transfiguration is that the valleys will end. And his glory will come. And I think one of the most beautiful things about Christianity is that we have a God who came down the mountain and went into the valley and he suffered the death and he parted the way of death into resurrection and he says, look at me and come follow me and I'll take you through death into resurrection. And so he's saying, keep your eyes on me because I'm the one who will lead you through the valley and into the glory of the Father's kingdom. You see, Jesus is the glory. Jesus is the glory. Would you say that with me? Jesus is the glory. And that's the point of this table. Every week we go through life and most of us are walking through some valley. We have our own sufferings, we have our own struggles, we have our own burdens and every week Jesus invites us to come to this table. And he says, come to me, look to me because I'm the one who's already walked the road. I've endured the suffering, I've endured the shame, I've endured the rejection and the persecution, I've endured the sickness, sorrow, pain, and death itself, and I was raised up in glory, and if you come to me, I will lead you through those valleys, and I will bring you into the glory of my Father. And so as we wait for the glory of God to come fully, God in his kindness gives us this meal where you get to see the suffering and the brokenness in the, in the bread and in the wine, you get to taste it and it is all a foretaste of God to say, I will lead you through it so that you might feast with me forever in the glory of my kingdom. This table is a reminder to us uh, that Jesus is the glory. Jesus is the glory. Would you say that one last time with me? Jesus is the glory. Therefore, I invite you to rise.